you're sitting in your office when you get a call from an acquaintance with an urgent request to meet in Paris. A young man has gone missing in Syria. No government, embassy, or intelligence agency will help, but you have the skills and contacts necessary to track him down. So begins the suspenseful, shocking, and brutal true story of one man's search to find a missing person in Syria over 20 days, meeting with powerful sheiks, drug lords, and sex traffickers in pursuit of the truth. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program tonight features attorney and armed conflict negotiator, Daniel Levin, joined in conversation by Michael Judge of the Dallas Morning News. You can purchase your copies of Daniel Levin's book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner. Our audience receives a 10% discount from the Interabang Books online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember, you can use that code for any of the books in your online uh, store, not just online shopping cart, not just for uh, Levin's book. The council is so grateful for all of its supporters, and tonight I'd like to especially thank our friends at the Dallas Morning News for their program sponsorship. I'd like to remind everyone that you too can sponsor a program and to get in touch with Alana Buenrostro at the council at 956-466-1149 about sponsorship opportunities. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. And also, we are talking a lot in, uh, internally at the Council about rotating finally back to in-person. We are excited to welcome you back. We will be releasing more information about that uh, soon, so please stay tuned. Now I'd like to welcome our moderator, Michael Judge. Michael is a writer, freelance journalist, and contributing editor at the Dallas Morning News. He was formerly deputy editor at the Wall Street, a deputy editor at the Wall Street Journal, and a deputy editor, editor at the Asian Wall Street Journal. A graduation a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop in the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, his work has appeared in numerous publications over two decades on three continents. Michael. Thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, Daniel, thank you to you as well. And Michael, I leave it for you to take it away. Liz, um, I'm honored to be here and I can speak for all of us at the Dallas Morning News. We're honored to have Daniel with us. And I'd like to just begin with a short introduction and uh, of Daniel and to say welcome to everyone who's, who's watching. Daniel Levin spent his early years as the son of a diplomat in the Middle East and in Africa, which exposed him to many cultures, languages, and religions. Following his law studies and an initial academic career, he has spent the last 25 years working with governments and development institutions worldwide, focusing on economic development and political reform through financial literacy, political inclusion, and constitutional initiatives. He is also engaged in track three diplomacy and media, mediation efforts in war zones. 
He has worked with think tanks on novel constitutional models and on anti-corruption and political reform initiatives. Over the past 10 years, he has helped monarchies as they consider ways to increase the democratic legitimization of their monarchic systems. He is currently a member of the board of the Liechtenstein Foundation for State Governance. Levin's first book, Nothing But a Circus, Misadventures Among the Powerful, was published in Germany, Japan, Russia, and the UK. Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East, is his first book to be published in the United States. Speaking from experience as a writer who struggled with memoirs long, on long format journalism in the past, and uh, Daniel would like to point out that he is not a journalist, he's trained as a lawyer and as a negotiator. Um, but to me, as a, as, a, as a journalist, Proof of Life succeeds in many, many ways. It is a fast-paced thriller that reads, as the award-winning author Janine Giovanni put it, like a true life Graham Greene novel, telling the behind-the-scenes story of intrigue, danger, kidnapping, and negotiation inside Syria's brutal civil war. But it's also a heart-wrenching memoir, an examination of how the violence, corruption, and what Levin calls the economy of war tears at the souls, tears at the author's soul, challenging his faith in humanity. Without giving away too much, the book begins with Levin getting a call from an acquaintance with an urgent cryptic request to meet in Paris. The young man had gone missing in Syria. No government, embassy, or intelligence agency would help. Could he? Would he? So begins a suspenseful, shocking, and at times brutal true story of one man's search to find a missing person in Syria over 20 tense days. Levin, an experienced armed conflict negotiator, negotiator, uses his extensive contacts to chase leads to the Middle East, meeting with powerful sheiks, drug lords, and sex traffickers in his pursuit of the truth. He also discovers remarkable people who retain their essential goodness and spirit in the face of adversity. Daniel Kahneman, winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics and New York Times best-selling author of Thinking Fast and Slow, calls Proof of Life truly thrilling. Levin brilliantly conveys both the menace and the evil of Middle Eastern intrigue and some victories of human kindness over cruelty and despair. High and well-deserved praise. And with that, I'd like to thank Daniel for joining us to discuss Proof of Life, the war in Syria, and how that war and its refugees have affected not just the Middle East, but the world. On behalf of the Dallas Morning News, where I'm a contributing editor, I'd also like to thank the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth for making this discussion possible. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you. And welcome everyone listening and viewing. Um, I think by now, although my lighting's not so hot right now, I think we've all gotten used to uh, working from home and Zoom gatherings, so hopefully this will go fairly smoothly. Um, Daniel, I'll start with the discussion of proof of life and what it tells us about the war in Syria and the state of the world in general. Um, I thought it might make sense to begin at the micro level, Daniel, the level of the writer and work outward towards the macro, the state of Syria 
how best to deal with hostages and the global refugee crisis, etc. First off, as a journalist myself, I was impressed with your commitment to taking immediate, accurate notes throughout your journey in search of who you call Paul Blocker in the book. The idealistic young son of an acquaintance who disappears in Syria while working for an NGO and trying to do good in the world. But I was also impressed with your ability to capture characters, scenes, and dialogue using those notes. In your introduction, you write, I recognize that my own memory can be biased and noisy at times. I was surprised when much later I read my own notes, diaries, and recordings transcripts because I had remembered some incidences and exchanges differently. Can you talk a little about the process of recording and writing the book? Um, why you chose the sort of format you did and why you chose to use footnotes in, in, in certain places? Yeah, I'd like to say uh, thank you. Uh, I'd like to separate the answer in two. Um, I mean, taking notes and recording, the primary reason I'm doing it, I didn't think I was going to write a book. So none of that has any kind of journalistic perspective. The reason I did it is because, uh, especially in high pressure situations, I knew that about myself from other situations, especially with hostages, that uh, our memory can really play tricks. And uh, whether we black out our memories or we just really with certainty remember things differently from how they occurred, that was one reason is to make sure that I didn't miss things or forget things that might be crucial, uh, little hints, little clues or major things. And the other thing is one of the reasons I recorded as many conversations as I could was because there were some interactions I had with the less savory characters where I might be able to use or have to use those recordings as leverage. Uh, so it, it was really more, it was less of a investigative journalistic tool and more a kind of a negotiation hostage is a, is a tool necessary in the context in which I lived. Um, the footnotes afterwards, when I did decide to write the book, uh, I did the footnotes in part because there were situations I couldn't take notes or record. And uh, I had to afterwards corroborate my memory with others whenever I could do that. And there were instances where others remembered situations differently, whether I'd switched off a phone or given up my phone in a certain moment, somebody had said something or not. And I felt it was my duty when I wrote the book to mention when someone else's recollection was different from mine. So that was the purpose of the footnotes, in addition to providing some historical context. That's interesting. As a journalist, it's fascinating. It's hard to imagine an article that says at the bottom of the page, other people might remember this differently. So I, I appreciate the way that you sort of triangulate around the truth in that way. Um, I was also um, you know, struck by the fact that you transcribed any of your recordings you had immediately and, and, then, and then destroyed the, the, the original recordings. And you did that again out of for your own safety, correct? I did. So there, there are two tools, and uh, you know, I have some military background in my own life in the Israeli army. I was born there, and so uh, I was advised multiple times, also in my uh, prior life and, and presence in special forces, was that uh, when you record something, you have to be extremely cautious. You have to decide very quickly. Uh, what you might have to use, but also what could be used against you. Because the one thing that is abundantly clear, and I think we tend to forget this, is how easy it is to hack you know, mobile devices and recording devices. Uh, and so even if you back things up and try to destroy it, the pathway is still there. And 
you have kids. I mean, you know, I remember years ago when my own son as a teenager showed me how he could hack into our bank account. So it's one of those sobering moments. Uh, it, you're extremely vulnerable in those moments. So what I, what I decided to do is with almost all recordings is to transcribe them and uh, to transcribe them into a language where if someone found the transcript probably wouldn't be able to decipher it. And since I grew up in Switzerland and Swiss German is kind of a dialect that's equated more to a throat disease than a language, uh, I transcribed it into Swiss German. Uh, and, and it's a practice I've had in many, many years already, but in particular when operating in war zones, it served me well and then deleted the recordings in a way that there was no pathway. So uh, it, it's a, it sounds a little more intricate than it is. It's become instinctive and I would do this at the end of every day whenever uh, or whenever I had a moment of privacy. That's amazing. Um, okay, I was I was also struck by you know as a journalist I I worked in Asia for many years with the Wall Street Journal and I'm all too familiar with journalists being taken hostage overseas. Um, before I joined the Dallas Morning News, I worked for the Journal for many years and had the great honor of working with Danny Poe, who was taken hostage and murdered in Pakistan shortly after 9/11 um, in February of, of 2002. In proof of life, you write of your own fear of death but also of others. And you actually, at one point, say you learned to smell fear. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and how you overcame or worked around your fear. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to keep that short because I, you know, I could talk about that just exclusively and it would take more than an hour, but it, it, it goes back to my childhood where um, I felt that people who were scared emitted a certain smell. I didn't realize it at first when I was a kid. And later on, I started to learn more about it. I, uh, I practiced martial arts my whole life, competed pretty intensely uh, from you know, my age eight on until today. And uh, it, that brought me 20 years ago into uh, healing modalities that also showed that certain emotions also emit certain sense. So I don't want to get, I don't want to hijack this conversation too much into that direction. It's a, it's a huge passion of mine, but it did serve me in the sense that you are able to detect certain emotions uh, it, through assent to uh, fear or anger or anxiety or sadness. And so, and I described it briefly in the book. Um, it's a very personal part of my life and I don't want to say, I don't make this too esoteric for purposes of this discussion. Right, right. I thought it was a fascinating detail and it, it just goes to, to, to the point of how experienced you are in this field um, and how fascinating the book is. Um, I'm also was interested in, um, you know, you, you, you knew in your quest for Paul Blocker, which... Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. As we, you, you, you've used a pseudonym for, for the person that you were searching for um, to protect him, his family, um, as you use pseudonyms in other, in other parts of the book as well. Um, but um, you, you knew that there was a strong possibility you might end up being taken hostage or held for ransom. Um, 
or worse. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar with the, the James W. Foley Foundation, uh, named for the, for the journalists taken hostage in Syria, Syria in 2012. Um, and unfortunately, he was executed by Islamic State 20 months later. Um, Foley's mother, who founded the foundation in 2014, told the Associated Press in 2019 that at the time her son was taken hostage, there was no structure account or accountability to bring Americans home at that point. And how I wished our government had been honest with me that they really didn't know how, if possible, they could bring him home. How do you, uh, Daniel, given your experience, think hostage recovery could be improved here in the US by the US government? Allow me just quickly to give some context. The events in this book took place in late 2014, and it was just after the, the awful murders and decapitations of James Foley and Stephen Sotloff and others. It was the most gruesome escalation in the war late 2014. It was also the resurgence of the Islamic parties. There had been always the Al-Qaeda affiliates in northern Syria, the Nusra Front, but ISIS at the time in late 14 infiltrated and it, it, it escalated the violence and the gruesome cruelty of the war to proportions we haven't really seen. And uh, so this is deeply personal to me. I interacted with several of the families also of those who were killed. Um, it, it, it's a very difficult thing to do because the US as does the UK as does Israel officially has a policy of not paying ransom for hostages, no matter what the context. And without making a distinction whether the person was sent to that area by their government, whether it was a person sent by a newspaper, in the case of journalists, or whether it's freelancers who hope to get a good scoop and sell it and jumpstart their career, or, or doctors, you're showing a picture of Austin Tice, uh, who was taken, who's been held in Syria for all those years. And, and in my prayers go to Mark and Deborah Tice, to his, his, his parents. There isn't a day I don't pray for his return. Uh, and so uh, this, is, this is a very deeply personal matter to me, um, and it's very complicated. Uh, in the case of Austin Tyson, I don't want to talk too much about this, but he's, the, the assumption is he's being held by the regime or militias affiliated with the regime. There is a very active trade in hostages, too. Hostages are traded like everyone else is traded in Syria. Um, but it becomes very transactional for the captors in most cases. There are very few instances where it's about ideology. Uh, in most cases, it really is about money and there's a transactional nature to that and, and, and people are traded just like goods are traded. Um, and so it, it's extremely painful because once you get dragged into this, you develop a relationship with the families and you start to feel about the families and the hostages as if they're your own family. It's extremely hard to compartmentalize. It, you know, it's as if a, a pediatric oncologist just has to leave the things that he or she she's in the hospital in the hospital and not take it home where you really can't take the heartbreak. Uh, in this case, it never leaves you alone. You just don't think, I, I told you, there's not a day I don't think of Austin Tice. And so uh, this becomes so personal that it's very hard to switch it off. It was the reason I didn't really want to take on this matter when I was asked in, in 14 to do it. I just had a very painful experience and a failure of mine and of my network to even just get information on a person, on a missing person, not an American citizen, uh, someone else. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it's very hard to keep telling yourself you did your best, you did your best. So there, this is a, it's, it's kind of like when you talk about baseball where, you know, if you, someone who bats 
300 is a fantastic hitter. Uh, you just have to be able to fail seven out of 10 times. You, here, your failure rate is, even, is a lot higher than that. And so the few moments where you can provide relief uh, are, uh, sometimes I wonder whether they're really worth it, but that's the, that's the reality and that's the reality of this war. And Syria has a cruelty and a, a gruesomeness and kind of a senselessness. I mean, beyond the, the truism that most wars are senseless, um, in Syria, it goes to a way higher degree. We have 10 years now, 10 year anniversary of this war. Uh, 10 years ago, Assad told his nation that you either get Assad or we'll burn the country down. And it turns out they got both. Uh, and that's the reality. And so to try to get even just information on hostages in that kind of a context, where you have to navigate people who have absolutely no incentive to do anything for you and to do it in a way where you can't pay ransom or can't pay really for information, it's an illegal act actually, even if there's a bit of a wink wink uh, policy by all the governments, including the US government, there have been hostages who have gotten out of Syria and where a ransom has been paid, not by the US, usually by the Qataris, I stay away from those matters. It's, uh, it's extremely hard. Again, what I'm doing is what we call track three. So I don't represent a government in this process. I often help the families. I have to be really careful not to represent a government. Uh, that's also a violation of the Jones Act. So there's, you're navigating extremely complicated territory with very little support and very little leverage. So unless, you have a network of contacts and friends uh, or even foes who may need something from you in a different context. There's someone might be a foe, but his mother may need urgent cancer treatment in the West uh, and he can't travel because he's under sanctions list and then you have to try and arrange that. Unless you can operate in that kind of a context, even just to get a little speck of information, let alone release a person, uh, this is not gonna be for you. Um. I also know, when writing about the Foley Foundation for Dallas Morning News, that there, there are a lot of families that, that don't want to become public, that the, the, the people, that their loved ones have been taken hostage or wrongfully detained. I think the Foley Foundation right now says there are 53 publicly known uh, hostages overseas in, of US citizens or people from the US, um, either hostages or wrongly detained. Um, including in countries like Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, Venezuela, Russia, Egypt, Turkey, Rwanda, Saudi Arabia. I'm just curious, given your experience, how many how many do you think are are, are held hostage or wrongfully detained that are not known to the public? Is it is it a great disparity? Is it like three times as many, or would would you guess, or would it be? I don't know if you would even want to speak to that. Yeah, I mean, you're asking me, you know, to get, it's the Donald Rumsfeld conundrum, right? The known unknowns. I don't, I, I mean, I can't, uh, I can't venture any educated guess. What I can tell you is that I am currently aware of 12 individuals who, uh, who are being held just in Syria. Uh, and, and I'm active and our foundation's active in Yemen and in Libya too, but I'm just in Syria alone. I'm aware of, of 12 individuals. I can't give you the breakup of the nationalities, but those 12 are American, Canadian, and British. And, uh, and their, their, their disappearances there have not been made public, not by their governments, not by their families, for a number of reasons. This is a really complicated consideration. If you are if you are obviously if the fact that you've disappeared has been made public by an organization, the cat's out of the bag, but there is a very cruel correlation, which is you need to create some public pressure to even have a chance at 
getting proof of life and a release. On the other hand, if you make a disappearance public and a number of people start to inquire, then the captors assume that you, they have a high value hostage and the price goes up to a place where it's not realistic. I've had captors tell me that they expect $150 million in Bitcoins for a release in, in numbers that are astronomical. Uh, aside from the principal question of ransom money, the funds that family would never raise and no government would be able would pay would be willing to pay. Um, and so once you once you uh, name a case, you lose control over the process. There does come a moment where you may need to make something public. But as I said, I'm just aware just in Syria, and those are the only ones I'm aware of there, there may be well way more I, I really can't give you an educated guess as to how many there are. Uh, and and uh, and how many more there are because I, I really just don't know. Okay. Um, to uh, you know, I want to I want to make clear to people viewing the webinar that that what's fascinating to me about the book is it's not full of a lot of statistics or, or obscure um, um, facts or historical references. It, it, it's a very. Can you? Are you? Am I still with you? Um, it's a very hard driving narrative and it's put together very, very well. In fact, you could actually, it actually reads like a, a novel or perhaps a screenplay in some places. Um, I was just curious again, to go back to that. How did you, you a lot of it is, con, is constructed through just dialogue and, and creating the scene and, and the narrative drives forward very quickly. Did, did you consciously set out to do that after writing your first book? Did, or did you, is this something that just comes naturally to you? Oh, I, I didn't put too much thought in a technique. What, what I really tried to do is give a really literal rendering of this. I thought it more of it as a painting. I really wanted to, I wanted to take a reader. I, I, it sounds so cliche and perhaps all authors say that, but I really wanted to grab the reader by the chin and, and take him with me. I say in the introduction that th those 20 days felt like my head was being held underwater. And I wanted a reader uh, to have that feeling. I hope I'm not disincentivizing everybody from buying the book because it sounds so unpleasant. There's some hope in this story too. But I wanted, I, what I really wanted is to describe every sensation. So the smells or the foods or the, you know, whether you're sweaty or whether something feels dark, like you're in an elevator shaft, those descriptions in, um, in addition to as literal a rendering of the dialogue as I could give, um, I did consciously because I wanted this to be more of a, actually more of a documentary than a novel. If it reads like a novel, I'll take that as a compliment and I'm happy that it means that someone that someone's inclined to, to actually go through the book. But it felt to me as I wrote it, like I'm documenting this. I'd go through my notes uh, or recordings if I hadn't destroyed them, write it down. Uh, it was like a diary as I wrote it. And then obviously then with an editor, you shape it into the form of a book, But but initially, this read like a 20-day diary when I first started to work on this. Fascinating. Um, I want to sort of expand out a little bit from the your narrative to what's happening, what's been happening in Syria over the past decade, um, and and how things have disintegrated from day one. Um, um, you know, as everybody is aware. Uh, the Arab Spring began in December 2010 when Tunisian street vendor Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire to protest the arbitrary seizing of his vegetable stand by police. 
over uh, obtaining a permit. Pro-democracy uprisings soon spread from Tunisia to Morocco, Syria, Libya, Egypt, and Bahrain. The events in these nations generally began the spring of 2011, thus the name there of spring. In March 2011, Syria's government, led by Bashar Assad, faced an unprecedented challenge to its authority when pro-democracy protests erupted throughout the country. Assad used violence to suppress demonstrations, making extensive use of police, military, and paramilitary forces, as well as things like cluster bombs and chemical weapons. Opposition militias began to form in 2011, and by 2012, the conflict had expanded into a full-fledged civil war. That has now raged for over a decade and resulted in a massive ref refugee crisis not seen since World War II. In February 2012, I, I don't know, um, this was someone that I worked with quite closely, Fuad Ajami, who I had the pleasure of editing many times at the journal, he died of cancer in 2014, wrote an op-ed in the WSJ calling on Obama, President Obama, to respond to Assad's tyranny at the time. He said in his piece for the journal, we could, with some moral clarity, recognize the Syrian National Council as the country's legitimate government, impose a no-fly zone in the many besieged areas, help train and equip the Free Syrian Army, prompt Turkey to give greater support to defectors from Syrian units, and rally the wealthy Arab states to finance the effort. I, I apologize, it's a long question and it's a lot to unpack, but um, to what extent do you think those efforts were ever launched by the U.S. or its allies? And do you think those efforts that Ajami sort of lays out would have made a difference? Uh, this is really hard. Uh, I have strong personal views on that. I don't want to hijack the conversation with it. I'll just give you my perspective and then perhaps separate that from my opinion as, as best I can. Uh, you know, and, and just to frame your question even further, you know, just to remind in uh, August 2012, President Obama declared that so-called famous red line. He said that if uh, chemical weapons were transported, if he saw any movement or usage of chemical weapons in Syria, that would constitute a red line for him to change his position. He used some the phrase, a vague phrasing on that. Uh, and then a year later, exactly a year later, in, in August 13, there was the awful horrific chemical attack in, Gut in Guta and there have been many others in suburbs of Damascus. There are a lot of conspiracies about chemical attacks and uh, uh, Cy Hirsch has a whole uh, uh, book that he writes about how the fact that in fact it wasn't the regime, it was the rebels that used it to try to blame the regime. In fact, the, the truth is everyone's using chemical weapons. And in, in, in the course of my book, I got a lot of information on the use of VX, which is probably the most vicious chemical uh, weapon that it's not the Iranians and not Hezbollah who are bringing it into Syria, but the North Koreans actually. So, so, so you have every, the ugliest form of conflict you have there. And uh, when you ask what the US could have done, there's a whole range of, uh, of options and people's opinions range. Some, some go from saying, this is not our war, you know, stay away, it's the Middle East, people will kill each other in the Middle East, that's the way it is. It's a fairly common position. You have the other extreme says, uh, this is a humanitarian disaster. We have a moral obligation. And to do that, we need to not only bomb the evildoers, but actually send in ground troops. And again, there you have a full range, everything from the political right to the political left. And the whole concept of left and right stops making sense here. And in between, you have what ultimately ends up happening, which is here or there, some targeted 
attacks, some, sometimes uh, at targeted attacks for the sake of being able to say that you did something. So uh, there'll be a, uh, a missile attack on some uh, ammunitions uh, storage uh, of Syria or Iranian troops in Syria, uh, but the people will give advance warning so that there's minimal casualty because no one's trying to escalate it. It's all fairly wishy-washy. So if you're asking me, depends how you're framing the question. If I were president of the United States, uh, and I had the uh, power to make that decision, which I don't really, because it's a congressional issue of the War Powers Act. But um, if I had, let's say, the authority to make this decision, uh, it, you know, I may feel different in Syria as I may feel in another place. Let's not forget the regret that the world had in Rwanda by not intervening militarily with a genocide there. You know, the word genocide is kind of weird. People parse their words carefully and say, yeah, Rwanda was a genocide because it was just against the Tutsi. By the committed by the Hutus, so it's tribal, ethnic. Um, in Syria, it's more complicated. It's just kind of the Middle East with a whole lot of murdering going on. I, I, for me, it obviously amounts to genocide. I'm not trying to polemicize this term, but you've wiped out this country. 500,000 deaths, millions of refugees. The country is completely destroyed. Um, I think that Syria is simply a little more complicated than other places uh, because of the fact that you cannot solve it, even with a military intervention, without some form of synchronization with Russia in particular, and through Russia also with the Iranians. And obviously, you know, we don't need to get into our current interactions with Iran and our interaction with Iran since 1979 and the complications of that. That's a conversation in its own right. Um, I view it almost as an opportunity to find a way to coordinate. And let's not forget that we were completely coordinated with the Iranians after 9-11. So from 2001 up until President Bush's speech where he called Iran part of the, of the uh, axis of evil uh, in 2012, actually Iran and whom we consider the most dangerous Iran Iranian, Qasem Soleimani, were our allies. General Petraeus thought very highly of him because they were our allies in the fight against ISIS. So it's not totally unthinkable to work together with people even we're opposed to. But you can't answer the question as to whether we have an obligation to militarily intervene in a place like Syria without also then asking, well, how would we do that? How does that impact Israel? Does Israel benefit from the clashes in Syria because at least no one's firing rockets into Israel from Syria? So is everyone kind of happy because it seems kind of contained with the exception of the fact that obviously millions are dying and you have a refugee crisis? Uh, those are the uglier questions when you get to this. That, that brings me to one of your footnotes, um, which I find so fascinating. You, you explained that uh, Project Bistar the project you were part of when the Syrian war first broke out to mediate settlement between the Assad government and opposition groups. Um, you said that at that time when you were, when the project Bistars first started, um, Assad seemed open to negotiation. But all that changed, you wrote, when the Russian inter with the Russian intervention in September 2015, when Russian, Iranian, Hezbollah troops turned the Syrian regime's fortune around. Um, I think you just sort of spoke to that and maybe perhaps why why Iran joined with Russia on this, but um, can you elaborate on that a bit and how and how that you see that there could have been an opportunity, but once Russia and Iran became so heavily involved in Hezbollah, that opportunity was gone. Was it just the strengthening of Assad's, Assad's yeah. hands? 
Yeah, what flipped the war actually was really the Russian support and everyone seeking something else out of their interventions in Syria. It's not that they have some love affair uh, with Bashar al-Assad. In fact, President Putin, I know for a fact, despises Assad as a person, maybe because Assad's really tall and maybe it's that he doesn't really like tall people. Yeah, there you can see it. Um, but everyone has a different perspective. I do want to point out a few things. Hezbollah was the first to get involved on behalf of, of Assad, and Hezbollah suffered losses in the battlefield early in the war that they had never suffered before. 60% of their senior officers of Hezbollah, these are, this is a highly trained militia, 60% were wiped out, in, mainly in southern Syria in the conflict, something that Israel wasn't able to do in the various fighting that they had with Hezbollah, which, you know, as we know, kind of came into formation in the wake of the Israeli-Lebanon war in 1982. And so Hezbollah had its obligation because it felt that if Assad falls, then Hezbollah doesn't survive politically in Lebanon too, because up until then, the Syrian regime had been the major military support for Hezbollah as it built its power in Lebanon to control Lebanon, mainly Southern Lebanon. That's Hezbollah. Iran has a completely different objective. If you talk to an Iranian, a politician, diplomat, general, and I've spoken to many, uh, they say one thing only. They, they couldn't care less about Assad. They come from a different Shia sect. So there's no religious affiliate. People like to say that the ruling party in, in Syria, the Alawi sect of Shia Islam is supported by the Iranians because they're both Shiites, but that's not true. It's a completely different lineage of Shia Islam. They have a lot of contempt for them as they do for the Houthi militias in Yemen. It's more complicated. It's not a religious thing. The Iranians want to have a border. They want to control a border with Israel. For them, it's geostrategic and military. I've heard this multiple times. I've heard this directly from the mouth of Qasem Soleimani. So uh, that is their primary. Uh, and of course, they don't want to lose control over their satellite states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen, right? In part as a consequence of our Iraq war. Russia has different interests. Russia used to be in the form of the Soviet Union, which is the glory days that the, obviously Putin is trying to resurrect. Um, they used to be a major player in the Middle East. They supported Nasser in Egypt for obviously for a long time. They were they supported the Syrian regime. They lost a lot of that standing when they had to leave Afghanistan. For them, getting back into Syria gave them that access and gave them a port in Tartus and Latakia on the Mediterranean shore in Western Syria. They have a very geostrategic thing and they are interested in the oil rights in Syria. Uh, yeah, that's the area. Uh, and uh, the oil rights in that, just a few days ago, the Russian mercenary group, the Wagner group, which is also active in Libya, uh, just, um, just uh, assumed and or signed oil contracts in Western Syria. So for them, it's, it's both this geostrategic presence and also very strong commercial interests too. And a lot of the Russian mercenaries also involved and profit from the drug trade, the captagon trade in Syria. So, so as you see, to answer your question, it's not a monolithic answer about what everyone's trying to get out of this, their presence in the area. Right, right. Let me, let me go to one of the questions from one of the webinar viewers. Um, and this, this gets to the heart, I think, of your book. Um, this, Rachel asks, when looking for the missing person, you encountered people doing horrible things. Do you find yourself becoming disappointed with human nature or encouraged along the way by the good people you met? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a horrific experience. I, it, it's not so much about discouraging the sense that I reflect back on my life and say, God, people, you know, people are just evil. Why is that? I think that the most 
the the most uh, powerful sensation I have in that respect for myself is uh, you know there but the grace of God go I they, I just was fortunate enough and my children were fortunate enough not to have been born there and to have been suffered it could be anybody um, I I think to answer your question in that way Rachel as you formed it I certainly am sustained by the kindness of people and and really more also inspired it's not so much supporting me it's that I see people risk everything for no benefit whatsoever, uh, just because they haven't lost that kind aspect of their humanity. And if you allow me, um, I, I wanna tell you a brief story which didn't make it into the book for, for a number of reasons. Uh, I was asked not to write it that way. Uh, when I was in the Israeli army in the late eighties, uh, my unit captured a Syrian group, a uh, military unit that had by mistake entered into uh, Israeli territory in the Golan Heights or disputed territory, however you want to call it. And uh, we captured that unit and I was my job as the commanding officer of my unit to debrief the Syrian officer. Uh, and it, we ultimately all agreed and the general command gave me the orders to just release them back into Syria. No one wanted to turn this into something larger. It would have been very messy. Um, and this Syrian officer whom I first met in 1988 has stayed, I've stayed friends with him. We've stayed in contact. I left Israel in 1992, came to the US. I stayed in contact with him all those years. And he was extremely helpful for me, not just in this particular case that I describe in the book, but in the case of other hostages, by getting me information or helping, in some cases, even exhuming bodies and taking a huge personal risk. And it wasn't about ideology, it wasn't about anything. He, he has lost that long ago in that region just because he's held on to that kindness. So you do encounter these things and they're inspiring because uh, you know, I ask myself whether I'd have the courage to do that, to behave that way, and, and uh, I don't know that I would. So in that respect, those are the most powerful things that, uh, of course, you live through the horrors, but those kinds of moments really inspire you. Thank you. Um, another another um, viewer wanted, to, wanted you to speak to the, uh, what you call the war economy um, in Syria, and I wanted to just mention your postscript of your book in reference to that. Uh, you say many people are under the, you know, belief, misguided belief that the war is already over. You say this war is not over, the killings have not stopped, the chemical gassings, the cluster bombs, the executions, the torture, the human trafficking, the annihilation, and you, you go on. And you say everyone in between, caught in between in this has been wiped out. Yes, the war economy is alive and well. And this war will last as long as that remains the case. Can you can you explain a little bit what you mean by the war economy and how it sustains the fighting? Sure. Uh, in even Syria is a very easy example. It's nothing new. For example, that that, that uh, drugs are a big part of a fueling of war. That's been the case in with the poppy industry in Afghanistan and South America. Conflicts that have been sustained for decades because of drug wars. But Syria, in Syria in particular. Uh, when you have such a sustained civil war and such a devastation of a country, first of all, most goods become scarce and so their price just goes up astronomically and those who can control the supply of those goods just make huge amounts of money. Some of the wealthiest Syrians today are individuals who weren't even that wealthy when the war started, but they started to go into cities and towns that were devastated and start searching buildings for copper and metal and steel and started to sell it in the black market and became really wealthy. Um, today in Syria, so, so of course, if you can control the supply of fuel or, or, or food or water or blankets or medicine or 
or uh, uh, vaccines, of course, right now, uh, you can charge anything you want. And so some people have become stupendously wealthy just on the whole supply and demand issue. Then you have uh, the drug that I mentioned earlier, this amphetamine called Captagon, uh, that is being manufactured in unbelievable dosages in Syria. It's being sold all over the world. Uh, Captagon, little white pills, they're sold in Europe. Uh, there were tons of Captagon a year ago that were caught in Italy with a value of about $2 billion just in one capture in Sicily. So, and that's what you caught, what you catch. They're being sold in Europe, in Canada now, and in Saudi Arabia, often through blister packs, so make, to make them look like, like medicine, like ADD medicine. Um, it's nothing new that amphetamines, uh, that the sale of amphetamines work in war. It happened in the Second World War. Hitler's troops used an amphetamine called pervitine at the time to sustain them in the Blitzkrieg. Um, but the, the, the proportions of the Captagon trade are, are just astronomical, and it has created a drug epidemic, especially among young Saudi males, uh, that is a huge national crisis now in Saudi Arabia and not just the same in Morocco now. Now, in addition to that, in Syria, you have an unbelievably active trade in people. You have young girls primarily, some boys, but mainly young girls who are taken from their villages. I described two such young women uh, in my book and trafficked from Syria, often to the Gulf and sold uh, into sex slavery. Uh, and are, uh, you suffer the most horrific uh, fates that we can uh, possibly imagine. Uh, you have the trade in hostages. I mentioned that earlier. So everything becomes tradable. And what's so fascinating and horrific at the same time is when you focus on the war economy from that perspective, two things occur to you. One is that it's entirely transactional. In other words, I've, I have seen with my own eyes, ISIS and Nusra militias trade humans and goods with regime. So in other words, in the day, you fight everyone in the battlefield, and then at night you start trading, uh, which is not altogether surprising. One of the first things Assad, by the way, did is he released his Islamist prisoners in the war, sort of the scorched earth policy, the same thing that Saddam did, which became the beginning of ISIS when in the Iraq war. Uh, it was sort of, if you don't want me, then I'm gonna really destroy the country, including by that. Um, uh, and so the second thing you learn about the war economy is when we talk about what would it take to end these wars, you asked me earlier about military intervention, what should the US do and is it right and are there red lines. Uh, you can have all the interventions in, in the world that you want, but if you have a military economy, uh, sorry, a war economy that is as powerful as the one in Syria with people in power earning those kinds of astronomical profits. Yeah, they have such a strong incentive to continue this war and they're holding all the power. They'll be stakeholders also after the killing stops if it ever stops. And so unless you disrupt that type of war economy, you're simply not gonna end these conflicts. And that's a more complicated question. For example, the cash profits of the drug trade, they make their way into the global financial system. And I'm, this is not a conspirational, there are Western banks who pl fly planes into Indonesia to pick truckloads of cash and bring them into their bank's vaults and then put the money for a 30% haircut into the SWIFT global financial system. This is, these are global, these are publicly traded, very blue chip uh, financial institutions. So that's just one angle of it before we even get into the whole blockchain and cryptocurrency aspect that immediately hides the origin and ownership of these profits. So unless we find a way not only to disrupt, but interrupt and, and cut through these types of channels, 
you're not going to stop the war economy. And if you can't stop the war economy, you're not going to stop a conflict such as Syria can go on for 30 more years, uh, as awful as that is. Yemen has been more or less in a state of perpetual conflict since the 50s when Nasser thought he could have a, a fight there. So uh, th th that's critical to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds horrible and cynical, but don't they, won't they run out of people at some point? I mean, they, they've already... Uh, six, six point six, according to the UN, six point six million Syrians have been forced to flee the country in the last decade, and another six point seven are internally displaced. Um, you know, a lot of them, the vast majority, have gone to places like Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt. But obviously, people have been flooding into Europe as well, in Germany and France. And I was even, I was in Switzerland um, in. And I was high up. Um, I wish I could remember the name of the um, the name of the of the place that I was. But there were Syrian refugees on a on a mountain creek in little tent cities. And my and my host Mirko said, uh, "Yeah, they they they've been coming in droves, and the, and the Swiss have allowed them in. But they want they 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 preferred to stay on the creeks creek beds than to." stay in the government housing that they had for them. Um, I guess it, it seems almost too late to address the refugee crisis, but I mean, what can the rest of the world learn from this? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you deal with, with the, the implosion of a state of that size? I mean, I know, I know you don't have all the answers, but, but Germany, you know, made a pledge to let in a million people. The US has sadly let in very few from Syria. Um, I, I guess to try to end on a, on, a, on, a, on a more uplifting note, what, what, what could we learn from all this and how should we be treating these refugees? And what, you know, what can we take away from this in terms of our own humanity? Uh, well, I think actually, I mean, the refugee crisis is obviously, uh, it's a horror show and I, I don't have to get into that. I do believe that the refugee crisis actually is probably the most tangible and promising way to end these conflicts. And the reason I say that is if you look at Europe, there has been a rise, and, and again, this is not a political statement of whether I like right-wing or left-wing governments. I don't like any wing governments. Um, and so it's not a progressive or conservative statement. It's just that there has been a rise of autocratic government governments in Europe with strong fascist elements. And I'm saying this with restraint. Uh, and, uh, and, and that goes as sort of Islamo-fascist in the direction of the Turkish president. And that goes into different forms of ethno-fascism that you see both in Russia, you see it in places like Hungary, you see it in Poland. Um, you're facing elections in Europe where the far fringe comes to power. And I'm not talking about people who believe in trickle-down economics. I'm talking about really the, the far fringe by anything that we would consider unacceptable in polite society. Uh, and uh, not people who are interested in governing, not people who are interested in solutions, people who are interested in flamethrowing, who also govern like they're still in the opposition. And uh, if we really, together as a society, and the same goes for the United States, if we really have a commitment to end uh, th that, that, uh, that spring of the autocrat that we've witnessed now for the last few years, certainly in Europe, uh, one way to do it is to stop the flow of refugees because there's no doubt you see it in every single European country. 
that the rise of the far right is directly proportionate to the amount of refugees that entered or traveled, transited through a country. Uh, you're going to see it now play out in the French election with, uh, with Marine Le Pen running against Macron again, probably in the, in the second round. That's what we're in all likelihood going to face. Uh, you saw it in Italy, and you see it with Salvini, who's basically all the polemics. And by the way, the refugee crisis in Europe was probably, I believe that strongly, I was very involved in that, the singles, the main reason why in Libya there's some hope that uh, we can finally emerge from the civil war since the fall of Gaddafi. Uh, there's an interim prime minister, it's not, not that relevant who the guy is, uh, Abdel Hamid Biba, and what his background is, it may be just a placeholder, but the willingness of the Europeans to say, we got to stop something, it's not because they suddenly discovered their love for people, it's because the, there was a steady flow of African refugees coming through Chad and Libya into Europe. And they realized that if Libya stays in a state of civil war, that refugee crisis is not going to end. They came on little makeshift boats in the Mediterranean. Uh, the same, you can apply the same logic to Libya, which is to, to Syria. In other words, if you really at some point want to address this refugee crisis, no different than the drug problem, you have to go to the source of it. And you're not going to end it if that war keeps on raging that way. You're just going to have, you're never going to run out of people and you're never going to run out of civil wars, not just in the Middle East, but elsewhere. And this is before we even take into great migrations as a result of global warming that we're going to face in Europe going north out of Africa. So uh, this is what we're facing over the next years. Um, and I think that European leaders are starting to wake up. They're not just political leaders, social leaders, thinkers, teachers in, in all areas are starting to wake up to that, that a war in Syria directly affects an election in Serbia. Uh, and uh, you don't have to think too hard to figure out the analogies for North America too. So um, to me, I think of that as a hopeful point. I'm not trying to force some hopeful comment. I just think that may be the solution to these things because at least there the incentive of the outside powers is aligned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at and you know, the, you know, like you said, you can see very, very similar um, analogies in North America um, and Central America. Uh, um, so I guess we just have a few minutes left. Um, I've got kind of a, a lighthearted question that I hope uh, might, and, and I want to reiterate again, the book is actually an incredible, an incredible read and a, and, and a very fast read. And I don't want to talk about what happens because part of the part of the thrill of going from page to page is you don't know what's going to happen and in that way it, it is a, it is a wonderful read even despite the awfulness of the of the characters and the some of the humanity displayed in the book um but i had a quick question i was wondering in your bio you said you were the son of a diplomat um and I wondered, is is it part of your path in life? Was it, in a sense, seeing the failure of dipl diplomacy that led you to career as a conflict negotiator? Or, or seeing how diplomacy can be so fragile, maybe? Um, I think that, uh, in fact, what led to my involvement in Syria was I, I wrote an article that was heavily syndicated in the Arab world called Diplomacy is Dead uh, in 2012. And it made its round through the Arab world. and that led to some further involvement in some of these Arab Spring countries. Uh, I don't want to make a polemic against diplomacy or the United Nations, but what I do believe is that the traditional diplomacy as we know it with track one, the, the ambassadors and heads of state meeting and very scripted types of interactions, I think have very limited use. There's some use and it's important that people can get together without bashing in their heads. 
Um, but I think that if you really want to accomplish something on the ground in a situation that's difficult, in a real conflict, uh, you have to do diplomacy sort of the way you define who a good lawyer is, that you never ask a question if you don't already know the answer. Uh, it's the same thing there. You have to create successful outcomes before you can even make public the process. And if you can't have a successful outcome, there's full plausible deniability. I think if we have more of that diplomacy, it goes a long way in addressing these types of conflicts. Excellent. Well, I want to. I want to. I think we're going to wrap it up here. Um, I want to thank you, Daniel, for for joining us and congratulate you on a fantastic book and um, for enlightening us on this very very dark subject, but giving us hope at the end because I think what you're the story you tell in the end is a story of hope and it's a story of one human being caring for other human beings. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both for a great dis discussion. This was fascinating. Daniel, you are a wealth of information and uh, I could have listened to this topic uh, for hours. So thank you very much. Before we sign off, I'd like to remind our viewers to pick up a copy of Proof of Life at Interabang Books. Use code DFWWORLD at for 10% off your online purchase. And to catch up on our past programs, head over to our YouTube channel uh, at DFWWORLD. And if you're not a member of the council yet, please join us. We'd love to see you more, and I look forward to meeting you in person soon. We really are moving in that direction, and you'll hear from us soon about that. Uh, I think we're all feeling the Zoom fatigue, and perhaps for a long time now, uh, but we look forward to seeing you in person soon. And speaking of membership, I'll now kindly ask our contributors, Circle members, to stick around on this webinar for a few moments. Daniel and Michael have graciously agreed to stay for an additional Q&A session as a benefit for this upper membership level. To learn more about membership levels, head over to our website at dfwworld.org slash membership. Thank you all for joining us and have a good night.